I'm retired Major General Charlie Dunlap. I'm now a professor at Duke University School of Law. I served in the United States Air Force for almost 35 years. During that time, I served as a judge advocate or legal officer. I had the opportunity not only to serve all over the United States, but I did a tour in the UK at Upper Hayford. I also did a tour in Korea. Like everyone, I deployed to the Middle East and Africa for uh, different operations. I was doing training on the law of armed conflict. I was in the Air Force at the time, and I remember giving a presentation to some very senior officers where I was trying to emphasize the importance of it. I said, we obey the law because we're law-abiding and we're moral. And at that point, one of the senior officers cut me off and said, I don't need a lecture from a lawyer about morals. I have a chaplain across the street to do that. I want to hear what the law is and why. And I thought, what is the practical way that a warfighter would think about the law? I started thinking about how adversaries, even at that time, were weaponizing law. So I decided to use the term lawfare as a way of accessing this audience and trying to be an effective advocate for the law in that context. I actually thought I had invented the word, but then I did a Google search. This is back in early 2000s, 2001 timeframe. It actually had been used in Australia in the late 1970s for a completely different concept. It was used in relation to renters and landlords and so forth. So I talked about lawfare as being a way that the law was being used as a substitute for traditional military means to accomplish a military mission. It has both good and bad aspects to it. The good aspect of it is, and the example I like to use is during the early part of the war in Afghanistan, there were commercial companies with satellites that had the potential to take photographs of our bases in the Middle East and so forth that would have been of great value to adversaries. There are different things that one might consider to try to stop that from happening, but instead, what I call a legal weapon in that context was used to wit a contract where all the imagery was bought up. So in other words, at the end of the day, what the military wanted to do is to deny that imagery to the enemy. And the way it was accomplished was through a peaceful, lawful means. Now, most people today will think of lawfare more as how the adversaries use it. What the adversaries try to do is to capitalize on how law-abiding rule of law democracies are. They value the law, and they expect their militaries to comply with the law. So if the adversaries can demonstrate that isn't the case, then that will undermine the public support that Clausewitz and every other military theorist will tell us is necessary for democracies to have the public support that they need to wage war effectively. So what we've seen is initially adversaries just seizing on happenstance to claim that there is a war crime or a violation of the law of war. War was being conducted in an inhumane way as a way of undermining that public support. But since then, we've seen more deliberate strategies of trying to orchestrate events and also seizing upon tactics that are unthinkable for rule of law democracies, for example, the use of human shields and using those as a way of offsetting the high-tech capabilities 
that advanced democracies have. So in other words, they don't have to build an air force if they are able to defeat the use of the air weapon through the use of human shields, even though that's a violation of international law on so many levels. What we see is that these adversaries really are unmoved by the notion of international law. We've seen what I call the collapse of reciprocity. In other words, international law is built on the idea that if you obey the law, then the other side will obey the law, and there's this mutual interest. Today's adversaries, most of them, I would suggest, don't see it that way. And so what they try to do is to uh, undermine that adherence and that respect for the law by exploiting it in these sorts of nefarious ways. One of the challenges that we have today is that the public and even elected officials don't really understand how the law of war works. And even operators within the military don't understand always how it works. It's much more permissive than people would think. At the same time, we've developed this expectation of an extreme precision with the application of force, which is more than what the law requires. In other words, policymakers impose additional limitations that aren't required by the law in an effort to make the application of force more acceptable and more humane. But that has created ideas, I think, in the mind of the public, whereby every time there's a civilian casualty, they think that something's gone wrong. There's been some kind of illegality purposely or through negligence in some way, when actually the law is more permissive. And if I could just give you one example from Protocol 1 of the Geneva Conventions, the proportionality analysis means that before conducting an attack, a commander must determine that the military advantage anticipated will not cost excessive incidental losses of civilians or civilian objects. Well, excessive is a subjective determination made by a reasonable commander under the circumstances. And the anticipated military advantage is a subjective decision made by a reasonable military commander. Neither one of those would require zero civilian casualties, but we've seen, at least in the U.S., and I think the U.K. is probably in the same situation, where the expectation is zero civilian casualties. Unfortunately, when those kinds of policies are announced, the enemy will go to school on it. So if they know that your policy is not to conduct a strike, if there's even a single civilian casualty at risk, then they will make certain that they are always surrounded by civilians. I'm sad to say that it's been rather successful. But as a result of that, what we see is Western militaries in particular are doing things that we would not have seen even just a few years ago. You might recall that in Syria and Iraq, operations were conducted against ISIS oil operations. In other words, this is not just oil that was being used by ISIS for their military vehicles and so forth. This was ISIS's oil business where they were getting revenue to pay their fighters. Now, historically, that's been very controversial, especially in Europe, where the thought was that war-sustaining targets like that were too attenuated from the normal military objective and that definition under Protocol 1 to the Geneva Conventions. The U.S. has always taken a different view, a more aggressive view, that war-sustaining targets were legitimate. 
But here we had a circumstance where, contrary to public belief, it, it wasn't a blank check given to the military. There was a determination based on intelligence information that there was a very close nexus between this revenue and the ability of ISIS to field soldiers. It's not well known, but many of the foreign fighters and others were motivated. It was a job. It was making money. And when that money was cut off because of the loss of revenue from the oil sales, as well as they actually bombed the physical cash, it hurt their ability to field fighters in a very real way. Some commentators have alleged that this is now a blank check to attack every aspect of an adversary's economy. It isn't. Although we have to keep in mind that General Drazimov of Russia recently announced that the first thing the Russians would do in a major peer competitor fight is go after the economy and the political structure without distinction, without differentiation, which is a whole different ballgame than what is being done in Iraq and Afghanistan. Afghanistan, we see that there's been strikes against the opium labs and the heroin labs as a way of denying to the Taliban a significant source of their money and their ability to procure weapons and field fighters. And we've seen this norm change very rapidly. But what we have found is that if you strike these economic or war-sustaining targets, you're able to affect the battlefield with at the same time, putting very few civilians at risk. We don't hear reports very often about any civilian casualties when these physical objects are attacked. In fact, in the case of the oil revenue, leaflets were dropped in the area to try to get the drivers out of there. They literally told the drivers that they were going to be bombed in the next 30 minutes if they didn't get away from their trucks. think that they concluded that the better part of valor was to take off. This is an innovative way in which democracies are trying to counter this ruthless tactic of human shields that's been employed by especially non-state actors in the 21st century. I think that looking forward, we're going to see a lot of wrestling with this idea of autonomous weapons. We've had certain kinds of autonomous weapons for decades. The real issue is going to be when we have machine learning. In other words, it's one thing to have autonomous weapon where in advance you know exactly what it's going to do and the parameters of that. But what we're going to see coming online is weaponry that will learn on its own. The major military powers are all looking at this capability and working on it. What are the norms? What are the laws? What are the restraints that we want to put on it? I'm a little bit of an outlier on this in that I think that as much as we want to have a, quote, man in the loop, I think in the future we will have a man in the loop, but only in the sense that a human being will decide to activate the system. The question then will be, how much knowledge does that person have to have? Well, in my view, they're going to have to have a reasonable understanding of what that machine learning device will do and have a reasonable belief that it will operate at least as effectively and as safely and as in compliance with the law as a human being would. If that's not the case, then then law and, and indeed morality would preclude the use of that weapon. People say, well, how are you going to know that? Well, I think that that is the challenge. We're going to have to develop very robust testing protocols, perhaps using machine learning testers to test the machine's 
learning weaponry. I think we'll be helped in this respect because artificial intelligence is just not going to be a matter solely for the military. It's going to be all throughout our society and in business. So they will have to develop these protocols because if they're fielding these machine learning products that they're going to have to operate as intended and not do harm. So they'll be incentivized to build these testing protocols, very robust ones that will have to run through thousands, maybe even millions of different scenarios so that you can get up to that level of assurance that it's going to operate in a way that will be what you want and, of course, in compliance with law and, and morality. One of the great things that I've seen here at St. Andrews is that they are working to develop strategic thinkers. That is a conversation that I think needs to be in more universities. One of the things from the legal aspect that I run into is that around the world, not just in the UK or in the United States, but everywhere, they're often very erudite lawyers who know the law of war. But where it breaks down is they don't invest themselves to learn enough about the technology and the systems and how the bombs work, despite the fact that in the practice of law, it's an axiom that you must know the client's business in order to give effective legal advice. We don't always see that in this particular area. So I think that if we take young people who are much more receptive to new technologies and, and learning about new technologies. And then we overlay that with the strategic understanding that places like here are trying to achieve. In the future, we can build that cadre of national security thinkers, not just in the military, but perhaps even more importantly in government and in business that we'll need for this very complex future that we're looking at.